Well, good morning. How are we doing? So, Paul fixed the clicker that I threw at you last week. We'll see if it's going to work. But the microphone didn't work in the first service, so Paul fixed that too. So thank you, Paul. He's got, oh, there he is back there. Yeah. Paul's one of these guys that no one ever sees, but anytime I ask him to do something, he says yes and fixes it right away. So Paul is my favorite friend here. So anyway, that's good. Hey, we are still in the book of 2 Samuel. And uh, we are going, the title of today's sermon is, What Kind of King is David? And so we're going to take a look at how uh, David is rising to power, basically, in Israel's establishment. But more importantly, we want to take a look to see how he does it. What marks him? What makes this king Israel's best king? What makes him a man after God's own heart? And I'm going to give you the punchline in the very beginning. When I look at the way David leads, I am reminded of Jesus through and through and through. So we're going to uh, just file that away, and we're going to get to that in a second. But I think it's important before we actually jump in to uh, how David leads and rises to power that I address some issues that I've had some questions on, and that is the issue of violence in the Old Testament. You might have noticed that more than one person has uh, come to a premature end in the story of the Old Testament, and particularly the story of David's rise. And so I thought it would be worth our time to just spend five or so minutes A preacher says five minutes, it's probably going to be 15, right? Um, But spend some time talking about just that issue in particular. The first thing I want to say is that, yeah, it's violent, right? We've seen people die, and we're going to see some more people die. Um, And um, two things, well, one additional thing I want to say about it is it doesn't really look that much different than the world I live in today when we really think about it. Um, people will go to no end when power's around. And uh, that is a story that we see over and over again in this world. But how do we deal with that? And what do we make of it is the question I want us to deal with. And the first thing that I want to say, and this might catch you by a little bit by surprise, is our God is intensely incarnational. What do I mean by that? Incarnation is a word that we most often use around Christmas time. It has this kind of warm, fuzzy feeling and that God has come to be with us in the baby of Jesus, right? And that is a powerful, dramatic statement about God's intention to be with us and God's intention to give up power into being with us. But we have some kind of, I think, naive understandings of what that incarnation means. Even the incarnation of Jesus at Christmas. He was born into a world that was severely fractured. Controlled by the Romans that brought about peace through the sharp end of a sword. The king of Israel at the time was more, more interested in conserving his power than being God's man, which is a, a theme that we'll see again. Jesus' world that he was born into was surrounded by rumor and innuendo of his mom's unfaithfulness, right? And then not long after he was born, fearing for his life, Jesus' parents have to escape to Egypt so that the king of Israel won't kill him. That's the world God stepped into. So when we think about incarnation and the fact that God's with us, one of the things that we have to really wrap our head around us is he's with us no matter how crummy our world is. Do you understand that? There is no bit of the ugliness of humanity that God's not willing to step in and walk with us through. That's good news, but it's complicated news, huh? The Old Testament looks just like that, doesn't it? What we're talking about in the life of David is a real political struggle to be the king of Israel. 
I don't know about you, but anytime that kind of power is involved, human ugliness tends to show up, doesn't it? And we see that in and around David. But the thing about David that we'll see again today, and the thing that makes him a God after, a God after man's own heart. Wow. Woo! Todd's had a long week, hasn't he? A man after God's own heart. Um, is that he keeps putting God first over and over and over again. And we'll see him remind us today um, that he acts a lot like Jesus does thousands of years later. So that being said, if God's incarnational um, and he's willing to enter into our broken world, the next thing that I want to tell you is that, you know, if we only had the Old Testament scriptures, there'd be some pretty big questions to ask. Because it doesn't seem like this story is one that's getting much better, does it? As a matter of fact, when I look at this story, I see the repeated provision of God followed not too long after by the consistent failure of man. God creates a garden and creates us and puts it in us, gives us everything that we need and says, just do this one thing and honor me and don't eat from that one tree. And immediately after he does that, what do we do? Eat from the tree. God rescues Israel from the Egyptians and brings them through the Red Sea, provides them miraculous food and water, Gives them everything that they need to be a nation. Sends Moses up the hill. He gives them these laws to live by so that they might live righteous lives. And before Moses can come down the mountain, what has Israel done? Worshipped another god, huh? God gives us this guy, David, who's a king after his own heart, who's doing it the right way. He gets established up. And within chapters of that, I know I'm spoiling the story, David blows it and grabs for his own in the person of Bathsheba and then tries to cover it up and makes it worse. The Old Testament isn't the story of victory. The Old Testament is a story of need. We need a better solution. We can't do this by ourselves. If left to our own accord and just God's provision on this level, we're doomed to failure. But the important thing to remember is the Old Testament is the beginning of God's story, not the end of it. I would say to you, the way I think about it, and you might not agree with this, that the Old Testament is the beginning of the story, Jesus is the middle of the story, and the end of the story is yet to be written, huh? We're dab smack in the middle of it, right? We're waiting for God to come back. But as I read this story, one of the things that is set upon my heart is I am so thankful for the person of Jesus. That God didn't leave us at the beginning, He didn't leave us to wallow in our own ability to solve the problems of sin and isolation, violence and pain. He was so incarnational that he committed to step into our history, even in its incredible brokenness. And when he did, he showed us a new kind of kingdom, didn't he? He didn't show us a kingdom that had blood laws that I can avenge your blood with someone else's, right? He taught us to turn the other cheek. He wouldn't let military power be the thing that defined him. When the Romans came to arrest him in the garden that night and Peter drew out his sword and cut off someone's ear because he was a lousy soldier, right? What did God do? This is not my way. Told Peter to put away his spear, sword, and healed the man's ear. And finally, and most powerfully, all the violence the world could find to put on one man and humiliate him in one place, Jesus absorbed and experienced on the cross, did he? 
And his response wasn't to retaliate, but to end the vicious circle of violence by taking it upon us, becoming our sacrifice so that we might be forgiven and live in peace. That's the kind of kingdom God longs for. That's what we hope for in heaven, isn't it? That that reality would come true. You know, we do a lot of crazy thinking about heaven because we don't know what it's going to be like or where it's going to be or when it's going to come up and and all that. And so that blank slate gives people a lot of creative freedom, right? The one thing I've never heard about someone's description of heaven is that there'll be war there or there'll be violence there, huh? Heaven will be the place where the lion lays down with the lamb and shalom will reign. And that's our hope. And that's why we're glad that Jesus showed up. But let me tell you what, we can learn a lot about our condition and our need by looking at these stories that God gave us about his people. And that's what we're going to do now after we pray again one more time. Okay? Lord Jesus, I thank you that you've given us this powerful story of your man David. I thank you for his leadership. I thank you for his God-centeredness. I thank you for his example that has encouraged me. But more importantly, I thank you for you and that you showed us what our kingdom really looks like and what we hope for. Be with us this morning as we look about the best man can do and how David tried to do it following you and did a good job here. Soften our hearts so that we might see you in this story through and through. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what kind of king is David? Let's start there, but before we get to our text from today, I'm going to give you the executive summary of some of the things that happened before then. Do you see how that worked? I clicked the button and the slide went up there. It was awesome. In chapter 3, which is where we're going to be in verse 6, we're heard that there's this war going on between David's house and Abner's house, right? David has been appointed king over Judea, and Abner's appointed is not the king, both Ishbaoth, Ishbaoth Shabbath is the king over the northern kingdoms, right? What do we know about him? He's Saul's son, so he's the one who's in line. But let's be honest, Abner's calling all the punches. Abner's his political and military operative. This other guy is just a figurehead to make Abner happy. And we're told that basically here. Abner would have been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. Okay, so Abner's the the guy we need to worry about. He's the one who's in control. But uh uh-oh, problems have arised in the house of power. Abner saw one of Saul's concubines who was looking good to him, and as powerful men tend to do, he took her for himself. But this was a big problem in Ishbosheth's house because he was taking what belonged to the king. And in so doing, it's an act of usurping his power or stepping out of place. And finally, for once in his life, Ishobeth stands up and said, hey, you shouldn't have done that. Which, to no one's surprise, ticks off Abner and what he decides to do because uh, he called him on what he actually did wrong, says, well, then I'm going to go ahead and switch teams. <laughs> I was a Saulian, but now I'm going to be a Davidite, Right. And so what he does is he gathers together, confers with the elders of Israel, and he says, well, we all know that God appointed David king over all of Israel anyway, so now's as good a time as any. Let's go ahead and make the switch. Nice guy, huh? And then what he does is he reaches out to David. And David agrees to meet with him, 
And we're told twice in 20 and 21 that as Abner came to David, one of the most surprising thing happens in Scripture is that David, um, he meets with him. He has a feast for him and his men, and he agrees to end the violence. Right? He agrees to end the violence. He said, okay, you can come on over and we're going to stop it right here. And he sends him away in peace. So that's where we're at. And that's where our story in verse 22 that I want to focus on through. We're just going to do two verses and then some more later. So here's what kind of king David is. Just then, David's men and Joab returned from a raid and brought with them a great deal of plunder, right? They're financing David's kingdom, apparently. But Abner was no longer with David in Hebron. Now, it's important to note where they're at. Hebron is where David rules, but what did Mark teach us also about Hebron a couple weeks ago? What kind of city is it? A sanctuary city, a city of refuge, right? So what can't happen there? Blood cannot be avenged, can it? Interesting. Because David had sent him away and he had gone away in peace. That's Abner. When Joab and all the soldiers with him arrived, he was told that Abner, son of Ner, had come to the king and that the king sent him away and that he had gone in peace. So that's where we're at. There's one word that shows up three times here that we're supposed to take note of. What word is that? We all, this might be the one Hebrew word everybody knows, right? It's shalom. If you go to Israel and you greet someone, you say shalom. It's like the hippies back, you know, in the day. Peace, dude, right? <laughs> Got to be careful with that one in Australia, but that's another story for another sermon. Okay? Peace. What is it? Now, the most basic definition of peace is the absence of violence, right? But the Old Testament understanding of peace is much, much more complex than that. The image that sticks in my mind is a life that's being lived in balance. And that's why I have a scale up there. I have another one. I don't know why I'm showing this to you that I got when I was in Turkey a long time ago. But a life that's lived in balance um, is okay. Too much cheesecake, life is out of balance, right? Too much screens, life is out of balance. Too many people, life can be out of balance. Too few people, life can be out of balance. Mostly what we're talking about is living life in the abundance from which God has provided us. When Adam and Eve were in the garden and living off the provision of God and taking him seriously, they were living in shalom. When David is living as he does and and Saul comes into the cave that he's hiding in and he lets him go because he's God's anointed, not David, he's living in shalom. When Jesus... On the cross says, no more violence. I will be the solution to that and trust God to be the avenger. He's living in shalom. And that's what David does here. Was David being naive? Was Abner using him? We will never know. But you got to give him credit for trying a new way. A new way where less lives are lost, where less anger is stimulated, where peace is come to. It's interesting that what's David most known for? He's known for slaying Goliath, huh? I'm not saying 
that in our world there will never be military action. There certainly will be because there are going to be bullies that need to be stood up to. And I think that's what Jesus was saying when he said there will always be war and rumors of war. But that's the kingdom of this world, not his kingdom. His kingdom starts with the announcement of blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are the meek, right? Blessed are those who suffer. Hmm. The thing we see about David here over and against everybody else in this story, he's a man of shalom and not a man of violence. And he stands out because of it, doesn't he? What defines David time after time after time is that he put God's kingdom and what God wants for us in this peace before his own interests. Regardless, time and time again, he went ahead and said, what God wants is more important than what I do. My question for us is, what are we defined by? Are we defined by our own ambitions or God's? Are we defined by a kingdom that says, blessed are the poor in spirit, the meek, and those who will suffer? Or is it by our ambition and our seek for lust for power, prestige? David has made a statement early in his life that he's going to live different. And I find that the way he lives early in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Samuel, lines up very powerfully for the way, with the way Jesus lived. Let's go ahead and see how the story unfolds from here. So Joab went to the king and said, What have you done, you idiot? That's my editorial edition, but I think that's what he was saying. Look, Abner came to you. Why'd you let him go? Now he is gone. And you know Abner sent him there. He came not for peace. But he came to deceive you and observe your movements and find out everything that you are doing. Joab then left David and sent messengers after Abner. And they brought him back from the cisterns at Sarai. But David did not know it. That's important. David did not know it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, the city of refuge, the place where people are supposed to be safe, right? Joab took him aside into the inner chamber. And as if to speak with him privately, and there, to avenge the blood of his brother Ashael, Joab stabbed him in the stomach, and he died. Later, when David heard about this, he said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner's son of Ner. May his blood fall on the head of Joab and his whole family. May Joab's family never be without someone who is has a running sore or leprosy or who has who leans on a crutch or falls by the sword or who lacks food. That's pretty harsh. We'll get back to that. Joab and his brother Abishia murdered Abner because he had killed their brother Ashiel in the battle of Gibeon. And then David said to Joab and all the people with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and walk in mourning in front of Abner. So they would put on a parade where they'd march the dead kind of through the town to lament or remorse over his loss. And David's words here is, you guys are going to act like you're mourning and you're going to be at the front of the parade so that you kind of have to wear responsibility for what you've done, right? And King David himself walked behind the bar, the funeral, the, 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 the um, coffin. And they buried Abner in Hebron. And the king wept aloud at Abner's tomb, and all the people wept also. 
And the king sang this lament for Abner. Should Abner have died as the lawless died? Your hands were not bound. Your feet were not fettered. You fell as one who falls before the wicked. And all the people wept over him again. And then they all came and urged David to eat something while it was still day. But David took an oath saying, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I taste bread or anything else before the sun sets. And all the people took note and were pleased. Indeed, everything the king did pleased them. So on that day, all the people there and all of Israel knew that the king had no part in the murder of Abner, son of Ner. And the king said to his men, Do you not realize that a commander and a great man has fallen in Israel this day? And today, though I am the anointed king, I am weak, and these sons of Zeruah are too strong for me. May the Lord repay the evildoers according to his evil deeds. So there we have it. Joab, ever the operative, sizes up Abner's intents in regard to his own well-being and the well-being of David and takes matters into his own hands. He does actually what the Old Testament allows him to do, that avenge the blood of his brother, but the way he does it is all wrong, right? Abner calls him back to Hebron. To avenge the blood of his brother Ashel, he stabbed him in the stomach. He had the right to do that, but he didn't have to do it the place that he did it. Right? And the way he did it both violated the peace that David had negotiated with Abner and violated the law and the place and the the just way that it was supposed to happen. He should have known better. But he didn't care, did he? That's the story. But what I want us to focus on for the rest of our time is how does David respond? The first thing David is very, very assertive about is that he wanted all of Israel to know that he didn't do this. Now, there's one part of me that thinks you're the king. You probably should have known. There's another part of me that understands that he has no control over Joab and that's going to show up for the rest of his life. And it seems as though the way the story's told, the people of Israel understand this. This wasn't David acting to advance his own political wellness or his own self-interests. This was Joab acting rogue, rogue in a rogue manner. And how's David going to drive this home? He's going to do what we saw him do when Saul was killed in battle too, huh? Do you remember what he does there? He laments. And that's what we've got here, don't we? When this guy who people understand is a threat to David and a possible opponent to him is died, David's response isn't to heap coals on him or throw insults on him, rejoice in the fact um, that he's gone, but to say basically in his lament, you were not treated justly. You were treated like the wicked, and that is not fair. He treats him with dignity. He treats him with the dignity, I think, that we hope we would be treated with in a situation like this. He treats him in a similar way that he does Saul. But that is not to say that he isn't going to be just, right? He concludes his speech to his men by saying, May the Lord repay the evildoers according to his evil deeds. And there's that one part in there where he says, I hope Joab's family has sores and curses and crutches, right? That's pretty harsh. Um, But the interesting thing there, and I think the point for us 
to take note of is who is he making the judge and the executor of justice? He's making God be that one, huh? He's not doing it himself. He's not ordering people to do it to him. But he's saying if there's justice, this is what it might look like. But the thing that he does so well over and over again, the reason he won't kill Saul when God seems that he's delivered into his hands, because he knows that's God's appointed and that's God's job to do, not my job to do. And that's what I see him doing here at the death of Abner as well. Pretty remarkable to my mind. David leads by example, doesn't he? And we need to be honest about the world that he's living in. It's a fiercely worldly environment, isn't it? The world that David is walking through and negotiating right now is full of palace intrigue, warring factions, cunning political operatives, warfare, potential coups left and right. It isn't a fairy tale land. You won't find it at Disneyland. It looks more like the pal- you know, the government chambers of you name any country in the world. It's ugly, it's dirty, it's confusing, and David does it well. How does he do it? The first and most poignant thing that he does is that God comes first all the time. The real God. And when God comes first, his character and doing things the right way is the important thing, huh? When I think about David's actions in this point, I'm reminded of Philippians 2. Paul exhorts us, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others more important than yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but the interests of others. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus had. Who, being the very nature of God, did not... Consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in the likeness of man. Seems to me David is doing that pretty well. To this point, he's been disciplined about making God's interest his primary interest. Making God the judge and trying to live and lead in God's ways. And this story basically, I think, demonstrates it for us in a couple of profound ways, right? David himself laments and participates in the death of Abner and the celebration. And when he gets to the tomb, what are we told that he does? He sobs, huh? Or he weeps. David leads us in grief. David leads us in keeping his promises. Remember, he told Jonathan and Saul that he would not wipe out this line of Saul when he took power. And Saul's family is having a rough go in these chapters, but it's not at the hand of David. It's the hand of others. He leads people by valuing and honoring his enemies like they were his friends. Powerful word. He leads by valuing and honoring his enemies like they were his friends. And finally, he leads by valuing shalom and peace and living the way God wants us to over self-advantage. What a powerful example for us, huh? Think how this contrasts to Joab and his brothers. They're predisposed to violence, aren't they? 
can't tell whether they don't know or don't care about doing things God's way. We know they're on the right team, but they don't seem to do things the right way. That's what the world does. We're called to participate, to mourn, to lead through grief, honesty, promise-keeping, loving our enemies, and living in shalom. So what do we do? How do we live? I told you from the beginning, as I read this story and see what David does here, I'm reminded of Jesus through and through. Huh? We're to be people who live like both David and Jesus do. This story is set in the beginning of human failures, but shines right through to the middle of Jesus' example for us. Jesus was a people that sought, Jesus sought shalom, didn't he? He wanted all of us to live in relationship with God and was willing to die on a cross so that we might get there. Jesus was one who lamented and trusted God to be the just judge. The power and the angels were at his fingertips. And when he was tempted in the desert and when he hung on the cross, he refused to act on his own accord, but was going to trust God to act for him. And Jesus led by example loving the poor, caring for the widows, and loving us to the very, very end, didn't he? That's what David and, model, David and Jesus model for us. As we live into this story, the challenge is big, but it's the only hope we have for peace.